0: Virgin Galactic launched a test flight of their commercial spacecraft when something went wrong. What caused this vehicle to explode after detaching?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. It feels like it's been a while since we recorded. It's only been a week. Yeah.
2: We're back on the regular scheduling.
0: I think someone increased their patronage. Thank you to whoever
2: increased (laughs) (laughs) their patronage. I think it was David. I think it was David, which is fine. I'm just like. That's great. What are you talking about? Well, no, I'm not not trying to be like, how dare you? How dare? No, uh, yes. Thank you so much. (laughs) Wow. Also, quick public service announcement about emails. I know we asked for emails. Please know, we all have full-time jobs. Yes. And we don't always realize that you guys want us to answer you. Although, if you send us a request, we will try to put it on the schedule. Oh, absolutely. Will it be the same day you sent it to us? Probably not. not. (laughs) No. So just be aware, like, we do see your messages. We do see your emails. If we don't answer you right away, sorry. We're working.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We all have literally full-time jobs that take up all of our time outside of this. And
2: or like sometimes I wait to answer emails till I can talk to these two about it because sometimes we need that. So just be aware. Yep. That-
1: we we will reply to them when we can.
2: Yes. If we think we can. If sometimes we like I said, we don't realize that
1: we do read everything. We yes. really do. We read everything.
2: Yes.
0: Sometimes... I mean it gets read by someone. Yes. I read almost none of these.
1: <laughs> Usually we'll tell you about it.
2: <laughs> also wanna shout out Brianna. Bree. Bree. Yep. Who I don't know if I don't know if you're a, a patron, but Bree listens to the podcast and they are a flight attendant. Who sent us an email? We will be answering your email, brie if you're hearing this and haven't heard back from us yet. yes, yeah, that. Just want to, you know, point that out there.
1: Yes, but thank you because your email was awesome. We really appreciate what you do. Oh, it was you wanted two to talk people. With
2: David did and Manu did. Ah, they could do you both. Okay, other housekeeping stuff. Sign up for the newsletter. Yes. Please. Please and thank you. <laughs> There's like four people who signed up this month and I'm like, thank
0: you. I worked so hard on it. There is a new one coming out tomorrow if you are listening to this the day it airs.
2: Or sometime this week. Sometimes I don't send it out on the first. Right. <laughs> because I forget. It's okay. <laughs> it's done. It's just usually I forget that I need to send it to like the, thir- like the third. <laughs> I, like, I yeah. get it. I get it. So you will receive it within the week. Mm-hmm of this coming out, which there's trivia on there. There's stuff we're covering for February on there. There's a whole bunch of stuff. So if you want to check out what's up for next month or whatever, sign up for the newsletter. Right. And sa- you, the easiest thing to do is to sign up at the end of the month for the next month because I send it out at the beginning of the month. Yes. So just be aware, like I usually don't send it out mid-month to people who sign up because that's like too much brain power for right. me. Right.
1: You're on the next one. Yeah. It's so, just how it is. Sorry.
2: It's easier if you sign up at the end of the month because then you'll get it right after you sign up. Right. Ducks are available.
1: Ducks are always available.
2: Check out the Patreon. Check out the merch, merch page. Also all available all the time. So. There you go. That's all a thing. Yep. So, what are we covering today,
1: Nick? Today, we're covering a really strange one. Uh-huh. We are covering Virgin Galactic.
0: Powered Flight 4.
1: Powered Flight 4.
0: Yep, that's weird. Everything about that's weird. We're going to space. Actually, I don't think we actually technically make it to space. No.
1: No, we don't. Not, not even close, actually.
0: <laughs> Thank you to our patron, Helen, and Alan! 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 For recommending this episode. Thank you. Is it Alan 1.0 or 2.0? Alan who inspires Miranda rage.
2: So 1.0, got it.
1: <laughs> there's some things. I don't know if this one will really make you too ragey, but there's some things.
0: I don't know. I got a little upset.
1: Yeah, it's a little frustrating when you break it down, but...
0: Some people have a very utopic version of the world in their head.
1: Uh-huh. I that, won't disagree with that. That
0: sounds suspicious. Right? No
2: one can ever make any mistakes, ever.
1: Ever, Never. Ever.
2: If that happened we wouldn't have a podcast.
1: That's true.
2: <laughs> Just saying.
0: <laughs> well, we wouldn't be here for no reason. So uh Yeah.
1: Okay. So this accident occurred on October 31st of 2014. This was Halloween. Relatively recent? Yes, on Halloween day of 2014. What were we doing Halloween day of 2014? We were I in high school. Idea. Wait. We, you, you were in, in high school. school. <laughs>
0: we're not that was our first halloween together
1: yeah i don't remember i think we were at anything. my
0: college i think we were at my mom's are were
1: we we were we at your what uncle's?
0: day of the week was that <laughs>
2: <laughs> now we gotta look it up
1: ah uh, jesus
0: so this occurred on friday october 31st 2014 oh i was definitely in school all right this
1: is a very strange one because of the vehicle we are talking about
0: Vehicle is the term that is used throughout the report. Don't come for me.
1: I use many a word because this is just... I
0: I accidentally wrote aircraft. It is not technically that.
1: It is. It's a craft and it's in the air. It never made it to space this time.
0: This one has made it to space, Not this time. Not this time.
1: (laughs) Not foreshadowing, but I'm foreshadowing.
0: But it is also a spacecraft and as such, they call it a vehicle.
1: I call it a craft many times because it's a craft. Whether that be a watercraft, a spacecraft, a landcraft,
0: a land an aircraft, craft <laughs> vehicle.
1: It is also that. <laughs> it's also an aircraft and a spacecraft.
0: Vehicular device.
1: Vehicular device.
2: Pick your favorite synonym here. <laughs> yes.
1: So this was the VSS Enterprise, which is a Model 339 Spaceship 2 from Virgin Galactic.
2: I like how it's the Enterprise.
1: Yes. They Someone it was a Enterprise. huge
2: geek when they named this yep
1: that's kind of unfortunate though <clears throat> so oh. oh well this thing uh, the best way i can describe it is you have to look it up <laughs> you uh,
2: have to look it's, it up it's on the the newsletter for january in it's- case you ever wondered
1: This is a Burt Rutan design.
0: It looks like it.
1: Yep. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up Burt Rutan aircraft and hit the images on Google because you will be astonished at the weird things this man has designed over the years.
0: That work somehow?
1: Yes, they all do. He decided to take everything we knew about flying and be like, I'm going to prove that this still works a different way.
0: He... pretty much threw it in a shredder and recombined the pieces into some sick, sad version of an aircraft that works.
1: He really liked doing weird things with aircraft. So this is a, this this particular thing is a two-part vehicle. We'll put it that way. One of them is definitely an aircraft.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the one in question, the one that had the accident, is not that one. It is the second part so, of
0: it. So, Spaceship Two. Right connects to and is originally launched from White Knight 2. Right. Which is a bigger, weirder-looking thing that is actually an aircraft.
1: Right. That is true.
0: The thing that Miranda's looking at. Yep, that. Uh Uh-huh. You have questions? Yeah, that's the
1: thing. Yep, that's the two parts. It looks
0: like there's three aircraft in one. That's what it looks
1: like. Right. So the White Knight has two fuselages. Yes. And has two different crews in it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs>
2: that's so. Like,
1: and they perform different functions.
2: i okay. Here, yes, here, One of them
1: actually flies, White Knight. <laughs> the other one does a lot of other things.
2: What? What was? What was the point behind having three
0: fuselages? Okay, so White Knight Two carries Spaceship Two. Right. Mm-hmm. Spaceship Two is spaceship the third thing. Spaceship Two is, is the thing in the
2: middle.
1: Right. That's the thing in the
2: middle. It says Virgin on the bottom of it. Yep. Yes. In the picture. That's the thing.
0: White Knight carries Spaceship 2 up to about 46,000 feet. And from there, Spaceship 2 detaches or releases, has its own rocket on it, goes into space. And the whole point of this is to be a space tourism thing. You are in space ever so briefly. And then you come back down.
1: It was to prove it was a thing. And for those of you that have been following the whole saga with the rich people in space thing, you will know that Virgin Galactic managed to actually successfully start this venture. Last year. Last year. And now they're doing these flights for commercial
0: use. This was one of the test flights that did not go so well.
1: Oh, well. Right. There we go. So all of that to say that this is... A very strange vehicle.
0: Please, for the love of God, just look at it. There's no way we're going to be able to describe it. It's on the website. No. Go take a look at it. It looks
2: weird.
1: All you need to know about this whole thing, too, is that White Knight doesn't matter. And everything Great. related to it doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter matter. So it looks it's the weirder of the two objects, <laughs> the weirder of the two vehicles. In in look, oh, it is it is. It you, looks
2: so weird.
1: If you ever look at the thing, that is the weirder of the two. But we will have I to bet describe it
2: looks even weirder without the third fuselage in the middle.
1: We will spend more time. Yes, it does. We will spend more time discussing spaceship two later on.
0: And it's weird functions
1: because it is a little more pertinent. Obviously, uh, okay. We're talking about Spaceship Two specifically. This is a test flight over the Mojave Desert from Mojave Airport, which is Excellent. a very famous test airport, by the way. The world's largest aircraft is there. It is a massive thing that is like White Knight, too, but is much larger in size. It's like taking White Knight, but scaling it up. And then on top of that, ESA and... The military both use the Mojave Desert area as a test facility. Right, they use this for testing from Edwards Air Force Base because it's in one corner of it, and they use this for testing anything from NASA, anything from the Air Force, any of anything. This is a big giant test area because it's over Death Valley in the Mojave Desert, which is pretty unpopular. Yeah, there's pretty much there. if
0: anything goes wrong, the pieces won't fall on people.
1: Right, and they're recoverable because they don't end up in the ocean. Yeah.
2: <laughs> They just end up in an ocean of sand.
1: Right, and it's really unfortunate we talk about that because that's exactly why they were testing there this time.
2: Okay, <laughs> and well,
1: that's they had to put all of that to use. Great. The captain for this flight was Peter Siebold. He was wait
2: captain in White Knight. No captain spaceship. <laughs> we are talking solely about spaceship. They okay. didn't
1: even give me any of the information about who Knight? was in White Knight. Okay. So,
2: I just want to, there's two different crews. You are absolutely correct. You are correct. I'm just making sure.
1: Yes, you are correct. No, we are talking about Spaceship Spaceship
2: Two. two. Just the spaceship.
1: Just the spaceship. Got it. Captain for the Spaceship Two was Peter Siebold. He was 43 years old at the time. He had 2,988 hours. That's it. Total. In what? That was his total. Does it say? I don't
0: know. (laughs) Okay. Flying, flying, Flying in general. Period.
1: He had 49 hours on Spaceship Two.
0: Okay, but Spaceship 2 on its own didn't have a whole lot of hours?
1: No, so... It
0: also didn't have a whole lot of hours detached.
1: Right, this is a test program, so take everything with a grain of salt. Of course they're not going to have a lot of hours, and that is is okay and purposeful. So, yeah, you take everything with a grain of salt, they're not going to have a lot of hours because this is a test program. Right. Of course they're not. The vehicle does not have a lot of hours.
2: Okay, I was just wondering if, like...
1: But they don't have a lot of hours overall.
2: Yeah, flying in general?
1: Right, right. So the first officer is Michael Alsbury. He was 39 years old at the time. He had 2,154 hours total. So both of them have under 3,000 hours.
2: Yes, but to be fair, to be a commercial pilot, you need 1,500. Yes,
1: that is true, and that is why they're legally allowed to be here. Right. But also... You have to imagine these people are doing a very specific thing, and they're on a very specific venture. They're right. not aiming to be airline pilots, so their time is pretty much built to be test pilots. I
2: have a feeling, though, like if this is going to be a tourism thing, right? That you have mm-hmm. to have it has to have some sort of regulation on the amount of hours, and yes, times. This and all
1: is that a stuff. hot topic even today. Actually, <laughs> the
0: FAA is looking at it like I don't know.
1: Even today, they still look at it as like I don't know. Do we?
0: Yes, all that. Yes. Exactly.
2: yes, they do. It goes into the air. So, yes.
1: Right. But it's only within what is considered airspace and not international airspace for a certain period of time. So, yeah. But that is that is all to be discussed. So
0: I hope you discuss it because that's the 40 pages of the report. I was like, ah, I don't know. what to It do doesn't. Here.
1: We're not going to dive too in depth on that on this one. I mean, we'll discuss it a little bit here and there, but it is a hot topic. So all of that to say, yes, they don't have a lot of hours But they're very specific in what they do have hours on and what they're doing because this is their venture. So that is what they do as test pilots. On the morning of the accident, all crew, both for Spaceship Two and White Knight Two, and all test personnel, so anybody on the ground and anybody involved in the test at all, participated in a briefing from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. about the flight. Just saying, here's how everything's going to run down. Here's Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Here's what we expect. Here's what to happen if things don't go as we expect. Things like that. Just... Good practice, of course. Around 7.30 a.m., the crew of both aircraft began their pre-flight preparations. The pilots of Spaceship Two entered the spacecraft, or the craft, at 8.15 a.m. and 45 seconds. There is undoubtedly a lot of data, because all of this, you might recall how Virgin Galactic has done many of their tests, as has SpaceX and um, Blue Origin. Blue Origin. Blue Origin. Blue Origin they all tend to broadcast everything related to their tests and virgin galactic was no different because they did so much stuff live during the tests and everything so of course they have data down to the second they have data way further than that actually so we'll just cover that now white knight 2 took off with spaceship 2 in tow on it from mojave airport at 9 19 a.m and 30 seconds the initial climb out and continued climb was normal 9.58 a.m. and 45 seconds, the first officer from Spaceship Two began the launch minus 10 checklist. So that is 10 minutes before their intended release from White Knight Two, they did the checklist, the first checklist, which is literally labeled L minus 10 checklist. This checklist was completed successfully. And then at 10.03 a.m. and 26 seconds, the first officer began the launch minus four minutes checklist
0: i don't know if captain and first officer are the accurate terms here they called
1: him the pilot and the co-pilot
0: that's what i used
1: and that's fine it doesn't matter but they are still kind of filling a captain and a first officer role
0: and pilot flying and pilot monitoring are also terms used
1: yes correct so in case you needed to know the captain is the pilot flying okay and the first officer is the pilot monitoring now they each have separate roles and this gets very complicated we'll talk about that later on So he completed this four-minute checklist as one of the final preparations before their release from White Knight 2. Okay. 10.05 a.m. and 39 seconds, the captain briefed the tasks that would occur during the boost phase, which is the point after they release, they start the rocket on the rear end of the spacecraft, Mm -hmm. and it rockets forward. Okay. That is the boost phase.
2: Okay. Makes sense.
1: Yep. So they briefed on the tasks that needed to happen during the boost phase, because it is a lot. 10.06 a.m. and 53 seconds, the first officer called 30 seconds from release. One second later, the control room on the ground indicated that Spaceship Two was ready for release. So they were ready to go. Three seconds later, the captain stated that the control stick was in the forward position, which maximizes the separation from White Knight Two after release. So they're in a constant climb right now, and the intention is Spaceship Two releases from underneath White Knight. So it has to go down, and White Knight continues to go up. For a period of time until they are fully separated and it's very clear that they're separated and then spaceship two rockets because well, you don't
2: want them to hit each other right because that's going to cause problems
1: right so spaceship two then rockets forward and then upward so okay. it has to get away from white knight, white knight. got it Ten o seven a.m on the dot the first officer stated that the launch pylon switch was armed and that the release button was illuminated yellow so they were ready for release simple Great. push of a button 16 seconds later the first officer from white knight 2 Began the countdown to release. So they did a three-second countdown, basically. They were like, ready? All right, three, two, one, you're off. <laughs> like, that is it. That Great. is the whole thing. seven a.m. in 19.1 seconds. While flying at about 46,400 feet, Spaceship Two was released from White Knight Two. Okay. Almost immediately, one of the Spaceship Two pilots stated, clean release, quote-unquote, which okay. means they were clear of White Knight Two. After release from White Knight Two... White Knight Two continued to climb to maximize separation before returning to level flight after separation was confirmed. 10:07 a.m. and 19 and a half seconds, so just 0.4 seconds after the release, the captain commanded the first officer to fire the rocket motor. The first officer then switched the rocket motor control panel switches, arm and fire, to the on positions. So there's an arm and a fire switch.
0: Which, by the way, this is one of the things that they were testing. They changed a facet of the rocket motor so that it would have more propulsion. They switched it from rubber to nylon, something like that. So that's yeah. one of the things they are specifically testing. Right.
1: Okay. So they did so. 10.07 a.m. and 21.6 seconds, so very not long later, just under two seconds, the rocket motor started. 10.07 a.m. and 24 and a half seconds, the captain stated, good light, meaning that the rocket was lit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: From here, everything happens so fast.
2: As it usually so does.
1: And yeah. it's really hard to describe just how fast all of this happens. There is a video, you will see this, on our website, and I, we will show it to you in a minute. But everything from here happens so fast, it's hard to even imagine. Okay. 10.07 a.m. in 26.9 seconds, the first officer made a call out indicating that they had reached Mach 0.8. So they were just under the speed, speed of, sound. of sound. Yeah. This was a normal part of the boost phase procedures. One and a half seconds after making the call out, the first officer stated unlocking, quote unquote, as he moved the feather lock lever to the unlocked position. Immediately after, the feather not locked light illuminated in the cockpit. Now,
0: I will get into all of this.
1: Do you describe how it works? Yes. Do you want me to describe how it works? Uh,
0: Nope. Let me do it.
1: Then I'm leaving it there at that point. So the feather started to move within two seconds of that. 10.07 a.m. and 31.4 seconds. So just 0.8 seconds after the feather began to move, the captain stated pitch up followed immediately by the first officer stating the same. Suddenly, while rocketing forward at 46,000 feet, so mind you, they had descended away from White Knight 2, and now mm-hmm. they're aiming to climb again, the craft suddenly pitched up hard, and a loud bang was heard from the crew before it broke up, which was accompanied by a cabin decompression. <laughs> Things happen very fast when you're talking about spacecraft. This, this
2: reminds me of Challenger. It yep. makes me have
0: flashbacks.
1: Yeah, this is not entirely dissimilar to how quickly that happened. Yeah. How quickly it happened. Yes,
0: yes, how quickly it happened, yes.
1: During the breakup, the captain passed out from G-forces and was thrown from the craft while still strapped to his seat. While falling toward the ground, he regained consciousness and found himself falling, still at quite a great height. <laughs> In a stabilized way, however, so he released himself from his seat and assumed the free-fall position. Now, releasing himself from his seat actually automatically released his parachute.
2: Oh, he has a chute. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, hold on, hold on. How the hell did he survive? I'm assuming that he survived. Yeah. Given that this was an account from him, I'm sure.
1: Yes, although all of this was on video, not that you can find any of this part publicly because it is not there. I really hope not. But they were filming all of this from the ground with an eagle eye camera, and they were filming a lot of this also from spacecraft and aircraft in the area. So I'm sure there's a lot of videos out there for those in the test program and behind the scenes on the investigation. they, They
0: did have a chase craft. Mm. right a chase plane following them so there's also visuals from that that are in the video we're going to show you okay right so and then the white Knight 2 had cameras that you will see video from spaceship 2 had cameras that you will see video from
1: yep okay onboard cameras so they originally had these seats built as basically ejection seats so they could get out and then have parachutes to
0: it's great for test pilots
1: which is yeah great no so he managed to pull his chute it deployed.
0: And he passed out again.
1: Yep. Eventually, he did wake up. He attempted to reach for his emergency oxygen system multiple times, but never received any oxygen flow. He did make it to the ground, but was severely injured both by the breakup and the impact with the ground.
2: Uh, I yeah.
1: Once on the ground, I would say he didn't move from there for quite some time. I think he was injured. We'll talk about just how long in just a second, but... He stated that he could hear White Knight 2 flying overhead. And then he started hearing helicopters eventually Mm -hmm. that landed with emergency response personnel on board to assist. The first of which landed at 10.52 a.m., which was a whole 45 minutes after the breakup occurred. So he was sitting there for some time. I don't go too in-depth on the rescue operation, but what I can tell you is while they had rescuers kind of ready to go, the Mojave Desert is a very large place, (laughs) and they had a lot of ground to cover, so that is part of it. But investigators did feel that it was lacking a bit because it took a long time for them to respond to the specific area so they didn't really have them ready to go where they needed them
0: mm-hmm. like if he was bleeding out he would did
1: right it would have been yeah too late meanwhile the spacecraft fell to the ground in pieces spaceship two leaving a wreckage area of two and a half square miles that was five miles long and a half mile wide but some pieces were found further away making a total wreckage area of 33 miles so, yeah,
2: that that definitely is a sign that it broke up in flight. Uh-huh. And this
1: is why the Mojave Desert was a really important place to do this. Yeah,
2: I would say so. But, if you did this say over Orlando, there would be like a huge problem.
1: There. Yes. So, and the whole thing with this is the Mojave Desert. Them doing it over the Mojave Desert. There's still a few places where there are populations. People live still within Mojave Desert and stuff. So there's a whole thing that I don't really discuss.
0: So there is a map in the accident report that shows the test area. It also shows the White Knight 2-track, the Spaceship 2-track, but you'll also see red circles that indicate exclusion zones. These are areas where you want to avoid flying so that you avoid debris landing in that area. Right.
1: The whole idea between the instantaneous impact point is actually from any given point along your flight path. If something goes wrong that debris will scatter from that point. And the whole theory behind instantaneous impact point is being able to estimate how far debris will travel from any point along the flight path in order to avoid striking anything populated.
0: And one of the exclusion zones is called Ridgecrest, and one piece of debris did end up in that exclusion zone.
1: Right, which is one of the little populated areas. But it didn't do any major damage because it was a small piece, so can't really even say that they didn't end up in, but this was a whole thing that they went into. And by the way, I skip over kind of a lot in the findings and wrecks because it just seemed pointless. When the emergency responders did find the cockpit section of spaceship two after it had obviously impacted the ground. Yeah. They found the first officer still strapped to his seat in the cockpit. Unfortunately he had perished.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's a big impact. Yeah. 46,000 feet.
1: Yeah. It wasn't a small thing. So that's pretty much it. It's, It happened really fast. Do we want to show the video now? You'll see just exactly how fast, because the moment they end this video is less than a second from the moment breakup happened, just so you know. Yes, this is from the NTSB.
2: Well, I would think so. Detaches.
1: There's the rocket. Rocket. Now watch the silver fins. That's it. That's it. That's where they end. That's how fast everything I just described happened. That is the whole thing. Like from release to rocket light. They're floating, and you'll see it goes hard up, and it ends right there.
2: Ooh. It, like, over-rotated. Like, it broke.
0: I, I will completely explain. It looks yes. like
2: it looks like it broke the, I, I want to say the wing. It's not really the wing. No. It's
0: actually designed to do that. It is designed to do that, but to we'll talk extent.
1: about why this went wrong.
0: Yeah, so this is video from White Knight 2.
1: Mm-hmm. But you can see how fast it rocketed away. This is all li- like this is all like real time like they didn't speed this up at all like this is just how fast spaceship 2 gets going can imagine the g-forces on that so that's how fast everything i just described happened i mean it is like three to four seconds from the time they release and it doesn't show the
2: actual breakup breakup Mm -mm. no No.
1: and they they purposely hit all that like you can't find that anywhere like i said there's probably video of literally the entire breakup everything falling to the ground and everything but that is all entirely to the investigators and to the space yeah it feels very
2: i mean this is not i'm i'm gonna say this now that has this is very different from challenger because challenger had its own issues Mm -hmm. we will We'll at some point Do an episode on Challenger <laughs> Yes that it's, is a... it, it. We have to wait for stuff I know we said that before But it's such a uh, heavy one Yeah But it, it's just so interesting That like It literally happens That fast uh-huh. yes. Exactly what happened In Challenger So right. So
0: this investigation Was performed by the NTSB, NTSB. Which is kind of strange It is Because it's a spacecraft
1: Right That so, made this one complicated
0: There is an entire appendix Of the report It's appendix A For those of you who care Dedicated to the justification of them having jurisdiction over this investigation. It's a lot of legal jargon, but it basically comes down to the fact that despite not falling under the normal classifications of accidents for the NTSB, this accident was a mode of transportation. So it counts. Okay. I can't fault that logic. They're the National Transportation Safety Safety Board. Board. Yep. As far as performing the investigation, this would have been a data dream because the investigators had all of the things they'd always wanted. Not only was this a test flight. That was streaming over 600 parameters of data to the ground. So they didn't have to dig through the wreckage for a flight data recorder. But this vehicle was also equipped with a cockpit image recorder. So images from within the cockpit. That's
1: the horrifying thing. The
0: thing that they've been begging for for decades.
1: Yes. The thing that mm, people in the cockpit don't want. (laughs) It's
0: a good thing they had it, actually.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: The first aspect that investigators analyzed was the role of the co-pilot's actions in the accident sequence. So when I wrote this, I thought Nick would cover this. So I have to discuss this a little bit. So in this phase of flight, they're approaching what they call the transonic bobble. Right. And basically what happens is when they actually make it to 1.0 Mach, when they reach speed of sound, uh huh, the vehicle bobbles vertically a little bit. Okay. Does some weird things to lift and stuff when you hit that point. So they're preparing for that. And then you might have noticed the term feathering. Yes. It was known early on that the co-pilot unlocked the feather. I will discuss why that is an issue in a moment, but that is an issue. So when it says feathering, when we talk about feathering before, give me a whole minute that is a
1: very complex system yeah
2: i'm figuring it's different because this is a rocket this is not a propeller it's so incredibly different i cannot words cannot explain it is an unfortunate. my my brain's like something has to rotate
1: and that is correct
2: aerodynamic abilities
1: while you are correct about that which is the only reason why this word is used correctly in this instance is because it is still quote-unquote feathering in an aviation sense it is feathering Completely separate from how the rest of aviation views feathering.
0: Well, because this doesn't have a propeller. Right. So Correct. So at this stage in the report, in the accident investigation, they already know that something went wrong with the feathering system, and that's how the entire narrative is done. So the co-pilot, we already know, messed up. Okay. He was not supposed to unlock the feathering at that point. So we already know that his role in the accident sequence is vital to be analyzed. That's why they started there. So question. Yes. Mm -hmm.
2: Were they eventually supposed to unlock the feather? He just unlocked yes, it at the wrong time? I'm going
0: to go through all of this right now. Okay. I just want to make that clear. Like, it was supposed to feather. He just did it at the wrong time. Let's go into why. Yes. Okay. So, during the boost phase, he was in charge of calling out when they were at 0.8 Mach so that they were prepared for the transonic bobble. That, I, it's a weird term. I don't go with yeah. it. Yep. They bobble in the air. The little bounce.
2: Yep. A
1: little bounce. As they go through the sonic wave, that's just, that's it.
2: That's why, by the way, that's why the Concorde had a delta wing. Yep, yep. Bobble. Bobble.
0: And he can see when they reach that speed, 0.8 Mach, either by monitoring the digital Mach readout on the upper left of the primary flight display or by noting when the airspeed indicator changed from a black background to a gray background, which would happen when the air data computer changed over to the inertial navigation system. INS. So there is a picture of the primary flight display up at the top. Sort of to the left is the mock reading, and to the left of that is the airspeed indicator. Okay. In the image you will see it is gray. Yes. Because mock is at point eight at that point in the yes. image. Okay. We're all on the same page. He can use either of those things to tell when point eight mock has been hit. Great. Data from the systems as well as the cockpit image recorder showed that the system changed from the air data computer to the inertial navigation system. At that time, the mock display went from 0.795 to 0.70. Because the two systems, the air data computer and the inertial navigation system, actually use two different methods to calculate speed, so the co-pilot had preemptively called out 0.8 when it read 0.795, anticipating it hitting 0.8 in like... But uh, then it didn't. But then it didn't. Okay. But the airspeed indicator did turn gray. Investigators determined his attention was probably on the mock display rather than the airspeed indicator background color. This is important in a minute. He is looking at the mock display. Okay. Not the airspeed indicator. Okay. The next step was for the pilot to trim the horizontal stabilizers, and the co-pilot was to call out the pitch trim positions accordingly. Once they reached 1.4 Mach, the co-pilot was to move the feather lock handle to unlock the feather. But for some reason... The cockpit image recorder showed that the co-pilot moved the feather lock handle to fully unlocked just after the .8 mock callout, 9.8 seconds after release, instead of at 1.4 mock, which would have been more like 23 to 26 seconds after release from White Knight Two.
2: That's weird. Uh huh. Especially since he's looking at the mock uh-huh. indicator. Uh mm-hmm. huh. That's really weird. Unless he didn't know or he thought or
0: something. I don't know. That's just weird.
1: The psychology. That's behind not even this. close. The psychology behind this can be a little strange.
0: Investigators wondered if this mistake was due to him misreading the primary flight display, confusing another value as the digital mock readout. What I assume was the human factors professionals, though they did not explicitly say that, they analyzed the primary flight display and found that the two acceleration values of longitudinal acceleration and X and normal acceleration and Z are near the mock readout, and this is significant because they are the same size, font, and color as the mock readout. Okay. Hmm. Not great. No. I... Uh, let me keep going. Mm-hmm. The co-pilot made the .8 mock call-out when NZ was at 1.0 and NX was 2.4. When he put his hand on the feather lock handle, NZ was 1.3 and NX was 2.5. When he moved the feather lock handle out of its D10 and towards Unlocked, NZ was 2.3, and NX was 2.5. The team deemed it unlikely that he had confused NZ as the mock value because of him correctly calling out, more or less, 0.8 mock when they were basically at it, and the odds of him confusing NZ for the mock within that short period of time were quite low. However, it is worth pointing out that numbers like that on a display should not be the same font, size, and color, and according to the SS2 avionics project engineer, there's never any discussion about that. Human factors, you shouldn't have numbers that look the same. next I to each get other.
1: into human factors a lot in the second part of this episode.
0: No, this was not a factor, but maybe think things through.
2: Well, I mean, that's why they have test lights, right? Like that's yep. the whole point. Although you don't want, you know, an entire vehicle to explode, but,
0: but things like this should be designed with human factors in mind way earlier in the process, like yeah, before the things built. But unless you know that it's
2: going to be a problem sometimes, as we've covered, multiple right. times before well, maybe they should listen to our podcast because sometimes <laughs> right. people is, they just don't like engineers just don't realize but
0: that this that's is a thing. this so, is something
1: they should have taken from aviation period because aviation was already
2: doing
0: that yes yeah. and this is an avionics engineer and right. so it's not like we don't have decades of avionics engineering to work with we do and as a we
1: have the technology
0: as someone who briefly worked in engineering in every design there is an entire aspect completely dedicated to human factors A hundred percent. It takes years to go through human factors. Of course it does. This should have been addressed.
2: I think part of the, and I, I mean, we're getting a little bit sidetracked here, but I think part of it, when you look at the picture, it'll make a lot more sense. Yeah. Like in my brain, it wouldn't be that confusing because Mach is all the way up there. And NZ and NX are right down there. Like, they're not right next to each other. Does it make it great? No, but they're not directly next to each other. Right. Which is part of why they're like, that
0: didn't happen, but we had to look into it.
1: But it only takes, you know, a tenth of a second looking at the wrong number to make that mistake. But that
2: would be, in my mind, being devil's advocate. Being like, oh, well, they're so far away from each other and they're, like, completely different. Like, there's an M right That's next to the mock readout, right? So in my brain, maybe the engineer that worked on this was like, they're far enough away. There's an M next to the mock. There's not a reason to make it a different color or a different size or whatever.
0: They interviewed the engineer and the whole conversation never even happened. They never considered any aspect of it.
2: Well, and that happens. We've talked about that. Yep. Which again is why you have test flights.
0: Anyway. Okay. So they had simulated this test flight numerous times. Any simulator. Was there a history of the co-pilot making the same mistake? No. Nope. Never. That's so weird. That seems so weird. I explain why it's weird. Okay. The best determination for the reason of the premature unlocking of the feather was that it occurred during a particularly dynamic and high workload phase of flight, to the point that they had to memorize their tasks as there was not enough time to read through a checklist.
2: Oh, they went into
0: autopilot mode. You remember how so- I said they had a
1: briefing on what was going to happen during boost? Got it that's what they were discussing.
0: This creates a very high mental, physical, and temporal or time demand, which limits your cognitive resources. So performance decrements can occur. That's all a quote. By (laughs) the way, I did not write that. I should have written that was a quote. Anyway, his three memorized tasks were call out 0.8 Mach, call out the pitch trim position in degrees as the pilot trimmed and unlock the feather at 1.4 Mach. Those are your three jobs. Furthermore, all of these happen in a very strict time frame. Simulator testing showed that the 0.8 Mach callout occurs within 8 to 10 seconds of release, trim callouts start less than 2 seconds after that, and the 1.4 Mach occurs 13 to 14 seconds after the trim callouts. If the feather is not unlocked before reaching 1.5 Mach, there will be a caution message on the multifunctional flight display. If it goes even further and it is not unlocked by 1.8 Mach, they have to scrap the entire flight. So... Basically, it's like he's going through the motions, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I called out there, and I don't know. I don't know if we talked about him calling out the trim. I don't remember that, but I thought, he never did it.
1: No, right? Because but they never the, got if, the chance.
2: If it's memorization type of stuff,
0: and you're, it's during a really stressful phase of flight. It's like check, 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 right? Well, that and there are a lot of consequences for not unlocking the feather handle. Well, if
2: you have to scrap an entire flight, you just wasted a bunch of fuel. You wasted a bunch of money and
0: hours and time and yeah. like. And the reason the that they issue, the reason right. they had to abort if it was not unlocked by 1.8 Mach, there was a risk that it would become stuck in locked after that. And they didn't want to risk not having feathers Okay, or feathered. It, I'll get there in a second. It's not hard to understand that these tasks may have gotten jumbled in the co-pilot's mind, especially given the overall stress of this being a real flight and not a simulation, coupled with the consequences of unlocking the feather late. As if all of this wasn't enough, this is not a particularly smooth phase of flight, and I mean that quite literally. Yeah. It's jumpy. You're
1: strapped to a rocket (laughs) (laughs) that just started.
0: So I read out the acceleration values earlier, and I did so quickly, and it may not have caught the significance of those numbers. The normal acceleration, or vertical, basically, increased from 1 to Mm 2.3, and the longitudinal acceleration was at 2.5 Gs. This caused vibration and load in the cockpit, and it was heard on the recorder that their voices were strained, and the co-pilot had actually struggled to accurately place his hand on the feather lock handle because of the vibration. And this phenomenon is not replicated in the simulations that they've been doing for months. Because good oh. luck replicating that
1: many Gs in a simulator. But
0: even the vibration, the fact right. like... Yeah. You're jumping up and down. I mean, you're on a rocket, right?
1: Yeah, you're strapped to a rocket. <laughs> this Again, you're strapped to a rocket.
0: This is also the point where I mentioned this co-pilot had not done a live flight under power since Powered Flight 1 in April of 2013, more than a year and a half earlier. So, all of this would have increased the stress and workload during a critical phase of flight. But there's a crucial question here. So what if he unlocked the feather? That wouldn't make it do it. Shouldn't there be a failsafe in place for a mistake like that? Oh
2: (laughs) god, here we go. Let's
0: first discuss what the feather system is, what it's for, and how it works. Please, for the love of all that is holy, that all that you hold dear, please go look at the pictures. I'm going to try my best here, but please just go look at the pictures. So this aircraft has basically two tails, essentially, one on each side. They are connected by the feather flaps, just behind, sort of in the same place as the fuselage. Again, let look at the pictures but the tails extend out past that connection point. They extend aft. These two extended sections are called tail booms, and each has a horizontal stabilizer and a rudder. Together, the feather flaps and the tail booms are all called the feather flap assembly. What the feather system does is pivot the entire feather flap assembly 60 degrees up so that they become almost sort of vertical, which would slow the vehicle during the reentry phase of flight. It would then retract back to normal configuration when they reached the end of the re-entry phase at 60,000 feet so that they could glide to a landing. When the system is retracted or unfeathered, the feather lock hooks some pins at the forward ends of the tail booms on components called tusks, which secure the feather in the retracted position. The feather actuators, the things that actually make the feather flap assembly move, are on the aft fuselage and connect to the feather flap assembly in the middle between the feather flaps that are connecting the tail booms. Everyone got the picture in their head? Kind of. I'm a little confused on on
2: the point behind it, but... So the whole thing moves up, and it acts as a drag.
1: It pulls out, but
2: how is it supposed to rocket upward, then? So
0: this is on its way back down. Right. Right, but why would they unlock it on its way up?
1: That's the good question. So do you explain that?
0: Not entirely.
1: Okay, but I'm sure you do to some extent, because I don't want to steal your thunder. But the gist of it is they have to unlock it so that it's ready to go on reentry.
2: Yeah, they're not oh. actuating it yet. So it stays
0: where there's it is. Separa- Sorry, I
1: misunderstood your question. Right, there's a separation between the unlock and the actuation.
0: They're not actuating it there yet. There
1: are two different functions. The unlock just purely makes it available when they need to actuate it.
0: Okay. So right now...
1: Because they need to lock it in place while it's attached underneath another moving vehicle.
0: Right. That so makes sense. There are two locks on the tusks, so the, the forward ends of the tail boots. Okay, all right. Yeah. That secures the feather in the retracted position. The feather actuators are actually toward the middle. <laughs> actually. Ha <laughs> ha They're connected to the aft fuselage, and that ultimately is what will actuate the whole assembly. Okay. So it's driven from the middle, it's locked at the ends. Okay. When a feather is commanded, the actuators extend. The locks and actuators are all controlled using pneumatics. So that's the system. Okay. So something happened
2: where they actuated the feathering system.
0: Not quite. Oh, well, that's what it
2: looked like anyway in the Did video. Did I not video. put the last picture? Hold on, because it looked like it was starting to rotate in the video. Yes, which makes me think you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Which means something, some something up. Yes, some sort of weird fluid dynamic thing happened, and it up you. Stop, <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> stop
1: it. Stop it. <laughs> you're getting too so, good at this. Some
2: weird
0: air happened okay We're getting too good at this so to operate the system the pilot monitoring unlocks it by moving the feather lock handle on the center console to the right to get it out of its detent and then pull it downward to the unlocked position okay that's this, this handle right here okay so moves to the right and then down okay so it's unlocked mm-hmm. that yeah so now the system is just unlocked, but not actuated. Got it. The pilot monitoring would then extend the feather by pulling the feather handle outward. To attract the feather, the feather handle is pushed inward and the feather lock handle is moved to the right and back upward to the locked position. Does anyone see a problem yet? Yeah. He only unlocked the system. He did not command it to actuate, but the camera on the tail boom definitely showed the feather moving. Yes, the the t- it moved. It moved yeah. up. Right. Which some again, something f- up. <laughs> something yeah. happened. Yep. So investigators went to the manufacturer called Scaled Composites or Scaled for short. For an explanation. Please explain. They state that, quote, if the feather were unlocked during the transonic region.
2: So right before Mach. Mm-hmm. When it hit Mach, it would actuate, huh?
0: The large lifting force generated by the tail acting to extend the feather could overpower the resistance capability of the feather actuators, acting to keep the feather retracted. The White Knight 2 pilot for Powered Flight 4, who was the <laughs> spaceship 2 pilot for Powered Flight 3, Jesus. Yeah. Among others, stated that the feather was to be unlocked at 1.4 Mach because at that point, the substantial downforce on the tail and the loads on the actuators would be holding the feather without the locks engaged. End okay. quote. So the same thing that would cause the transonic bobble? Yes. The boom? Yes. Caused the up and down motion that fought against the actuators. And it caused it to go up.
2: So normally, that's why you
0: have to wait till after. That's why you wait till 1.4 Mach because then the speed that's coming won't allow it to lift. It forces
1: it to stay in place.
0: It's it's like the centrifugal force thing, right? Like centrifugal, centrifugal,
2: whatever. Sort of. But yeah, Yeah. it'll stay in place because it's already there. But if it's bobbing up and down, it's unlocked. It's going to move up. There's
1: not enough force to keep it from actuating upward. Right. And when it's just unlocked, it's kind of like free-floating. It, it's
0: not, really, it's not completely free-floating. No, it's the not completely free-floating. The actuators are doing their best to keep it from free-floating. Right. But it's working on pneumatics. There's only so much it can do. It's not mechanically right. locked. There's
1: ends. a lot of forces there, but not enough to keep it in place. Right. There's a lot of forces that are allowing it to go upward.
0: So when they went transonic, bobble, it went up. And it... it it. So, okay. So it went up. Why did it explode? I will get to that in two paragraphs. Great. The surviving pilot reported that he knew to not unlock the feather before 1.4 Mach for that reason, but he didn't remember when he was told that. He didn't know if it was in a design review or if it was just in informal discussions, but it had been discussed so much that he considered it common knowledge, especially the requirement to not unlock the feather during transonic flight, which was exactly what happened. Right. Scaled's VP slash general manager, said that the company had not considered the possibility that the feather would be unlocked before 1.4 Mach.
1: They just didn't even consider it to be a possible thing. They were like, no, they just wouldn't do that. No, they wouldn't. That's exactly what happened. But they did that. Human factors, by the way.
0: Next question. Did the co-pilot know not to do that? The NTSB poured through emails, presentations, any documents they could get their hands on. They found two written references involving the accident pilot, so things they would have seen. One was an email from 2010. So four years earlier. And the other was a presentation slide from April of 2011.
1: So still three years earlier.
0: And they both addressed the excessive tail loads during the transonic region of flight and that you physically can't actuate the feather during that time. But neither referenced the catastrophic risk of unlocking the feather before 1.4 Mach. A different presentation from the same April 2011 meeting discussed an uncommanded feather operation during boost phase would be structurally catastrophic. Oh, well, that answers my question. But this finding was based on the assumption that the feather was already unlocked, so only the feather actuation has to fail uncommanded. In short, there was insufficient evidence to determine whether the accident crew fully understood the consequences of unlocking the feather early.
1: The gist of that is that human factors part of the company and design part didn't even factor in the fact that this was possible. Like, literally, they could just do
0: that. Assume you put a monkey in the cockpit, please. Right. So, to answer Bernard's question, why would the feather being actuated at that phase of flight be so catastrophic? Well. Well. When the feather is retracted, all of the drag forces enacted on the feather during an acceleration phase of flight go through the four hinges, two actuators, and two locks. Eight components, if you're counting. If the feather gets unlocked, now the drag forces are going through just the hinges and the actuators. As this happened, the vehicle pitched up increasingly rapidly until the whole vehicle folded in half.
1: Right. So, literally, where it was folding before, it literally just folded into itself.
0: Uh-oh. At which point, the feather flap assembly experienced a catastrophic structural failure. Yeah, when it folds in on itself. Turns out. The flaps failed, the hinge fittings failed, and the tail boom separated, followed by the rocket motor assembly and the nose and crew station. Everything failed. Which so is- I'm really glad that they stopped the video when they did, because I don't know if I could have watched that.
2: It's probably why they didn't let it go. Right.
0: So that's all I have. I will say there were about 40 pages of the report that were about human factors, organizational, blah, 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 and I can't handle that.
1: Again, we'll talk about that a bit in the second half here.
0: I went through the technical jargon. Yep. The stuff I actually understand more of. Dear people who are human factors engineers, good good job. Good job. I'm proud of you. (laughs) Dear people who have to watch that stuff, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you for doing the job I don't want to do because we need it very badly. Yep. And it was not present here. Right. Nope. Okay. Well. Okay. You're going to take a break.
1: Let's take a break. And we'll come back. Yes.
0: So. What I mean when I said they live in a very utopic world is they thought humans can't make mistakes or they wouldn't make mistakes. They wouldn't. What, Virgin Galactic? The organization as a whole, the manufacturer, Virgin Galactic. They didn't consider that the co-pilot would accidentally unlock the feather early. Which, I mean, there's a billion different situations that can
2: happen in flight, period. And it's hard to... But you count for all of it. You should test stuff like that, though, to make sure that if it happens, one, there's a failsafe, and two, that it's not catastrophic, or that there's a way for the pilots. I mean, obviously, one of the pilots survived because he had a chute. I'm assuming they both had chutes. Yeah,
0: Yeah. but he was too much forces. He was accidentally ejected, right? If he hadn't been forced out of the cockpit, he would have been with the yeah
2: first officer or the co-pilot
0: I don't know so I and we were just discussing
2: this while we were during break but I don't I wouldn't say that I'd get mad at this because it's just he went
0: in autopilot and made a mistake I mean we've yeah. covered no I thought the part you would have gotten mad at was the lack of human factors analysis well which to be fair yes that's stupid right yes. we, I think
2: what happened was instead of looking at Literally decades,
0: decades.
2: Of, of aviation history and seeing how human factors plays out. Mm-hmm. Actually, it might have been
0: a century at that point.
2: Well, I mean, that, would be, that day- would be 1914. Do we know that much information about stuff prior
0: to the war? No, but like we've drawn on designs from the Wright brothers for aircraft. You have a century's worth of designs well, my to point, draw on. My point
2: being, you have literally numerous accidents to look at Uh that had catastrophic failures of stuff like this. Was it a spacecraft? No. But this is an aircraft until it hits space. So if you don't realize that you need to put in fail safes, like, hello, can we talk about um, UA-232 hydraulic system? Just in general... Really, just assume something's going to fail and have a backup. It surprises me that they didn't think if these actuators were unlocked...
1: Playing the what-if engineer. Yeah,
2: like, if the actuators were unlocked before the bobble, what would happen? Just that. If they were unlocked before the bobble, for whatever reason, what would happen?
0: Right. I think, so... And I feel like that wasn't even
2: taken into consideration.
0: Pitching potential design ideas have a system in place where you can't unlock the feathering system until, until it reads you wh- read 1.4
2: right
0: we have the technology it, this, is, <laughs> this is
2: 2014 we're talking
0: about and it didn't it didn't even have a warning no no not that would have done a whole lot of good given how quickly everything transpired but right
2: my issue the pilots themselves didn't know that if they unlocked it early like that it would be catastrophic right they knew that if they took too long, Mm -hmm. it would be a problem. But they didn't realize if they unlocked it early that it
0: would literally cost them their lives. Well, we can't determine the extent to which the co-pilot knew that. Right. The pilot said he knew, but he wasn't the one in charge of unlocking the feather. He wasn't even paying attention. He didn't realize it had been unlocked. Well, and... It's possible
2: that the first officer, the co-pilot, whichever one you want to call him, didn't even realize that he had unlocked. He might, like I said, if you go into autopilot and you don't realize that you've unlocked it too early, even if he knew that was the case, right. the, it's already done.
1: Again, it's a tenth of a second decision based on something
2: and it's human too, factor. It's too soon for you to relock it. Like there's, right. It's literally that fast. That's it. Yep.
1: Yep. It's a human human factor. This is a human factor. I mean, it just takes that long
2: to make a mistake. It's just upsetting setting product. that there wasn't a backup in place. That- also, the there- human factor wasn't even taken into consideration. Right?
0: Is there a way they could have designed the feather flap assembly to resist the transonic all of bubble? This
1: is a fantastic segue into our normal things. Because Great, they cover all of that. <laughs>
2: Like, maybe we should have a fail-safe in place. Or several. Or like, why
0: wasn't this discussed before? Or
1: like any of that. That's the big one.
0: Luckily enough for them, this happened during a test flight.
1: The reason that's a big one is because the FAA didn't regulate it. So we'll get there. Great. All right. We're doing all the regular stuff. Findings. Probable cause and recommendation because it all exists here.
0: The only thing that didn't exist was an analysis. Okay, I understand this is not an ICAO report because I'm not sure this falls under the ICAO's purview.
1: Right, like findings is section two.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Analysis is usually section two. So when I open the report, I'm like, okay, I'll just skip to the analysis. Nope. Where is that? There is no analysis. (laughs) Nope. So I kind of uh, Frankensteined my part a little bit. That's okay. Sorry if it felt a little chaotic. I feel a little chaotic.
1: That's all right. Findings. Let's do some findings. They found that although the co-pilot made the required 0.8 mach callout at the correct point in the flight... (sighs) Kind of. Kind of. Sort of. He incorrectly unlocked the feather immediately afterward instead of waiting until Spaceship 2 reached the required speed of 1.4 mach. Right. Obvious. They found that the unlocking of the feather during the transonic region resulted in uncommanded feather operation because the external aerodynamics loads... On the feather flap assembly, were greater than the capability of the feather actuators to hold the assembly in the unfeathered position with the locks disengaged. So, again, catastrophic failure. If that the Fenty copilot was experiencing high workload as a result of recalling tasks from memory while performing under the time pressure and with vibration and loads that he had not recently experienced.
2: Which can we also talk about how this happens in commercial aviation mm-hmm. that something always gets screwed up. Yeah. If someone has to try to remember something from memory high that- workload
1: from memory during
2: a critical a, phase of flight a critical phase of where flight- you can't read a checklist or you decide not to read a checklist right. or You're bouncing whatever. up and
0: down.
1: Right. How he was even reading the numbers, I'm not entirely sure because, you know. So they
0: actually said he helped his situation a little bit in that regard. They did have a head brace to help with vibration and he didn't have it on, Hmm. which is good because then he was vibrating with the plane.
1: Right. That's fair.
0: With the vehicle. Sorry.
1: Yes. So that's a whole thing. They found that Spaceship Two's instantaneous impact point on the day of the accident was consistent with the requirements of 14 Code of Regulations 437.57, operating area containment. So I brought that one up because it is, we talked about that in brief, the instantaneous impact point where when something goes wrong, how far is that debris going to go from any given point? They're supposed to calculate all that, make sure that it's not over any of the populated areas. And they actually did find that it was consistent when they did all the planning and everything and when this actually had a catastrophic failure. It was technically still legal. It was still within the regulation. And the one part that did make it into a populated area was a very small part, and it was kind of the exception. It was the one little thing. It was probably
0: a lighter part that just caught the wind and fell further.
1: Pretty much, because the main wreckage fell exactly where it should have within the instantaneous impact point. Basically, the whole thing they designed around I think that
0: was the acronym. I hope I was right.
1: It says right there, instantaneous impact.
0: Okay, thank God.
1: They found that although Scaled Composites Systems Safety Analysis, SSA, correctly identified the uncommanded feather operation would be catastrophic during the boost phase of flight, and the multiple independent system failures had to occur to result in this hazard, the SSA process was inadequate because it resulted in an analysis that failed to, one, identify that a single human error... Could lead to unintended feather operation during the boost phase. And two, consider the need for more rigorously verify and validate the effectiveness of the planned mitigation measures. As in, there weren't really any. So again, human error. Yeah. One single failure point. That just wasn't wasn't good. It was bad design. They found that by not considering human error as a potential cause of uncommanded feather extension on the Spaceship Two vehicle, Scaled Composites missed opportunities to identify the design and or operational requirements that could have mitigated the consequences of human error during a high workload phase of flight. Still, again, with the human factors thing, they didn't do any human factors. They designed something to do one task external to all of the human factors, and that was it. They found that scaled composites did not ensure that the accident pilots and other Spaceship 2 test pilots adequately understood the risks of unlocking the feather early. So this is hitting more on, okay, we can't prove that they didn't know at all, but we can say that they didn't adequately tell them and make this a point often enough that this could be a thing, a catastrophic failure if you do it wrong.
2: Like, my question would be is, why is that not in the training program for the actual flight itself? Yeah,
0: because all discussion that the pilot reported was... He just knew it. Yeah, just discussion. It was never trained and
2: drilled into him. Just so you're aware, if this happens before you go supersonic, this can be catastrophic. Like, it should be in their training program that that is the case. And it should be
0: simulated that way. And it, it just... They basically were unable to discern if the gravity of the situation, I'm so sorry, was really made known.
1: Right. Now, two points from now, we're going to hit the really hard one. Okay. So let me read this one and then we'll get to that. They found that human factors should be emphasized in the design, operational procedures, hazard analysis, and flight crew simulator training for a commercial space vehicle to reduce the possibility that human error during operations could lead to a catastrophic event. That is huge. That one is huge in and of itself. The second point here adds to that. They found that the Federal Aviation Administration Office of Commercial Space Transportation's evaluations of Scaled Composites' initial and first renewal of the Spaceship 2 experimental permit application were deficient because the evaluations failed to recognize that scale Composites' hazard analysis did not meet regulatory requirements to identify hazards caused by human error.
0: Well, so I'm glad to know.
1: So you see why that's a so a important.
0: entire
2: section of the FAA. Glad to know they had that, but it sounds like they didn't do diddly squat. Basically. Well, it says that they found it deficient, but they did nothing at all about the fact that it was deficient right
1: so there are regulations in place that says they were supposed to consider human factors in their design analysis and they did not do so which is deficient and they were supposed to do so by this point now To add to that is even the next point, they found that the lack of direct communications between the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, Office of Commercial Space Transportation technical staff, and Scaled Composites technical staff, the pressure to approve experimental permit applications within a 120-day review period, and the lack of a defined line between public safety and mission safety assurance interfered with the FAA's ability to thoroughly evaluate the Spaceship 2 experimental permit applications. They didn't have enough time to look at the design. The FAA didn't actually go through this with the technical department at Scaled Composites because they didn't have time. They had a 120-day deadline, and they didn't have time to look at everything, consider everything. And because of that, they couldn't even hold to their own regulation.
2: Which is... Stupid.
1: Now, there's two ways they suggest fixing that, and we'll do those in the recommendations. Right. But that is a really important thing. The FAA had a regulation. They couldn't enforce it. So it wasn't enforced, and then it wasn't considered, and then the catastrophic failure happened.
2: Which, again, we've talked about this before with the FAA, with commercial aviation. Like, if this is going to be a commercial business- Yes, and you're gonna have regulations. Yep. You need to be able to back up those regulations. Right. You need to be able to check them. You need to have some sort of like your permit to fly is not given or whatever mm-hmm. before.
0: <laughs> yep. Like you can. You say, need. You need a big stick to carry.
2: Yeah. It's. You can say, oh, this is a regulation, and you're not meeting it. But unless you do something about it, they're gonna keep doing it. They want to make money. Right. Hello.
1: Right. So that that's actually a pretty good segue to the next point. They found that the experimental permit pre-application consultation process would be more effective if it were to begin during a commercial space vehicle's design phase so that concerns can be resolved before a commercial space vehicle is developed and manufactured and potential catastrophic hazards resulting from human error can be identified early. I
2: just feel like that's a no duh.
1: Yeah, so they should have considered these things before design. Yeah. They should have gone through all the consultation and everything and
2: like made hey, all of these
1: things this happen is the thing. following the regulations. Before it ever flew.
2: Yeah, before it was actually made and was in the process of being tested.
1: Right. Rather than the fourth time. (laughs) Much less. Yes.
2: They're lucky that this didn't happen before.
1: They found that the effectiveness of the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transportation inspection process would be improved if inspectors were assigned to commercial space operators rather than individual commercial space launch operations, because the inspectors could become more familiar with the operator's training and procedures and could identify ways to enhance safety. So, Seriously? Yeah. So this is this technically- Does that to be said? This is technically in a recommendation, which they also put in the recommendations, by the way, but they found it so important they put it in the findings too. If I had been on that panel, I would have disagreed and just said this is a recommendation. But, anyways, I the whole <sighs> thing with that is they are saying that they should have assigned a specific inspector to scaled composites, not to the launch facility,
0: not well, and not to just powered flight four,
1: right?
2: Well, and my, my idea is, is like, we've covered this before with the FAA with commercial aviation back in what, the seventies, mm-hmm. right? And why was this not considered when you're considering commercial spacecraft? Like, exact. why are they not one in the same? If you do it for aviation safety, why not do it for space safety? Yep. And also like, there should be more on space safety because there's stuff like, what happens if you catch fire on reentry. Right. You're potentially putting people in danger who are not trained astronauts and don't know what to do, right? right. If you're going to have this be a commercial setting, why are we not talking about all of this safety stuff way beforehand? Right. Right. With the FAA. Like, why is the FAA not ahead of this? The big and they, thing, it just seems like they're behind it.
1: Well, and the big thing with that is why is it like starting over?
2: Right. <laughs> when it, we've done like all starting, of this. It's like starting completely from square one, but we've and, been doing this for decades. Right. You're literally
1: asking the exact same organization <laughs> to do the same thing for just a different form of travel. And yet for some reason it's like starting over. That
0: which, just broke their brains.
1: Which again. is their next point by the way. They found that a database of lessons learned from commercial space mishap investigations would provide mutual benefits to public safety and industry promotion and would thus be consistent with the Federal Aviation Administration's mission and authority. No. Sh-
0: Guess <laughs> they what already the do FAA, that. They already have the platform for that. <laughs>
1: they already literally do that for all other forms of flight. So and why not trains? space?
0: And like planes trains and automobiles
1: all the planes trains and automobiles tend to have a database like this. and boats this is, yeah and boats so they, this is not a new thing the faa controls the one for aviation so why is it so hard to do that for commercial space I, like, uh, like
0: that's it is what just, i'm saying they're I the same understand.
1: organization
2: <laughs> i don't understand why is it so, why faa
1: why did we just think of this now
2: <laughs> why why are we starting from square one my guess why is, are we making it harder
1: my guess is inadequate resources they didn't give it enough resources thinking that this is very small compared to everything else going on yes but it is very high visibility which means to me that you need to put as many resources as you do into that as you do aviation because
2: okay let's let's put this in a perspective let's say this didn't happen on a test flight mm-hmm. let's say we get you years have down people the line. on board you get years down the line right no one like has now. discussed this yeah here we are now and we have people that are on these spacecraft right and this happens because a pilot's fatigued, yep. or they're not paying attention, or they're drunk, or who knows? Right. We have all these things that have happened that we've talked about on this podcast yep. that could make pilot error happen. Yep. And you don't discuss this until some people lose their lives. Right. And then we're looking at the FAA like, right. what the f-
1: Right, and the NTSB hit pretty hard on this because they felt pretty much exactly like that. They were like, why- Like, you're
2: lucky this, first why of all- Why are
1: we thinking about this now? Like, we've done all this before. This
2: is, hor- <laughs> first of all, someone lost their life, which is horrible. Yes. But why were we not considering that when we made this aircraft to begin with? Right. Why like were we, we not considering- Literally, we have done all of this before. there will be before. people on this aircraft, right. like spacecraft, whatever the f*** it is.
1: Right, we've done all this before. This is 2014. This isn't a new concept. This is a new form of travel, but not a new concept.
2: So, I, so it's just it surprising to me that it, it never, like, I hate to say this, but thank God it happened on a test flight rather than last year.
1: Right. When they actually launched On a launched commercial this, flight. On a commercial flight. And it flight. blew yeah. up. Right. And it happened
2: in the public where it can be, like, photographed. Right. And it's exactly like what happened to the challenger.
1: Right. But, That's the whole but thing. But there's
2: people. But, worse. but there's civilian people on board. Yeah. Right. Now like, there's
1: civilians, so these are the things uh, we have to consider. Right. got mad. Right. We have to consider that since 2014 things have changed. And I'm sure the FAA has made a lot more, you know, resources available for this because of the fact that now, very clearly in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, now going into twenty twenty three, there are so many more commercial ventures doing this with space flight and commercial space flight and how this is just a thing and how it became so prevalent during 2021-2022 that all of a sudden this is very attention-getting. It has to be as closely regulated as it is for the general public because the general public is essentially now involved.
0: I have a mildly rhetorical, potentially not rhetorical point. I wonder what Space Force has played a role in since.
1: See, that is a little bit different, though, because they fall under the regulation of the Air Force. It's- and it's much, I know, and that's much the same problem because you can say, okay, we've done all this with the Air Force before. They have their own set of yeah. regulations. They have to follow the FAA, but they also have their own set of regulations. It's a whole But is of it going to be a
0: whole thing again where... We'll start from scratch. No, please don't.
1: Right. But I will argue that because the Air Force has been launching things into space much earlier than commercial operations have been launching things into space, they already have a lot of awareness on this kind of thing. So launching a space force isn't necessarily entirely out of their realm. So they're probably a little bit more ahead of the game than commercial operations in space. Let's be
0: scared of those utopic views now. Right. Not make assumptions. Right.
1: Two more findings. Just two more. They found that. Scale composites and local emergency response officials could improve their emergency readiness for future test flights by making better use of available helicopter assets. This is specific because in the Mojave Desert, it is a very large area that they test in they only had a certain number of resources available. They did have helicopters, but they were far away from where the impact point actually happened. Basically, they could be having more helicopters present within the Mojave Desert and within the test area.
0: OK, fine. Sure.
1: Where they could be able to respond very quickly. So have them in certain sectors, per se, so they can respond within a certain area. Did
0: any part of this vehicle mm-hmm. contain an emergency locator beacon?
1: That I have absolutely no idea. They say absolutely nothing about that. And at this point, when it's a breakup, it doesn't really matter.
0: I mean, it matters a little bit.
1: Yes. They had so much data on this anyways that it kind of didn't need it. They knew exactly where every piece of it was, basically, as it fell.
0: But especially for the seats. Right. It would be kind of nice if, like, the parachute pack had beacons. Yes. Because if you do, for whatever reason, I don't know, get ejected.
1: Right. It seemed as though somehow, some way they knew exactly where the pilot was. It just took time to get to him. That was the problem. They knew where he was when he. OK, that was up.
0: that was part of my question is.
1: That's what it, they made it sound like. That wasn't a problem. They made it sound like locating him wasn't a problem. It was just a matter of the time to get from where they were to where he was. Gotcha. And that's why they suggested this, because more than likely he had some kind of indicator or again, this whole thing happened on camera. I know they but- kind of knew where he ended up. But, yes, I agree.
0: I recommend... Yes. ...having an emergency <laughs> locator beacon in the parachute pack.
1: Yes, this isn't entirely out of the realm of possibility since technology it exists.
0: Just have a GPS transmitter.
1: Right, so it's a pretty simple thing. Like, literally, they put them in everything these days because they are so small.
0: AirTag. Pretty much. Not an AirTag.
1: I mean, you can go way smaller than that. AirTag is, like, a large one. <laughs> like, they fit in phones and cameras. They fit in everything, and they're so small. So, that's a whole thing. Finally... They found that additional parachute training and procedures would have better prepared scaled composites test pilots for emergency situations. So okay, fair. That's fair, but I would say it still saved somebody's life. So ultimately, I understand why they saved this finding for last. They were like, okay, this isn't really that important. Whether or not that has anything to do with the first of co-pilot, I don't know. I don't know what his state was after the breakup.
0: I don't know if they would have a way of discerning that. Right. After falling from 46,000 feet, kind of hard to tell what injuries you had prior to impact.
1: Right. And on top of that, what was the condition of the seat before impact? Like, was it even ejectable? Was his parachute in good enough condition to actually operate? Like, those are things you just don't know. Like, when it folded in half, I have to assume that the feather went through the fuselage at some point in time. I mean, obviously, it was a catastrophic failure enough, but it looked like... It fell apart in many pieces, which tells me that it did some damage to the fuselage. How much damage did that do to their seats and everything? Because it and ejected him. Right. And to him because it ejected the pilot, the captain. So, yeah, that's a whole thing. I don't know. I don't either. But they say this one for last. And I mean, it is still important to have like parachute training if you're going to have one attached to you and the assumption that you might have to use it sometime.
0: You might actually want to know how to use it.
1: Yep. That's a pretty good thing because it automatically deploys for you. But then what? Like, I think the captain, he probably got injured on impact still because he didn't know how to, like, arrest his fall with the parachute.
0: He also didn't have a whole lot of oxygen to work with.
1: Right. He had assumed a free fall position and the parachute deployed immediately because he had released his seatbelt. So what I don't know is if he didn't know it was going to deploy all of a sudden because he had to fall still from a pretty great height with the parachute, too.
0: That probably took some time.
1: Yes, which is a lot of time, actually, that it could cause you to be hypoxic. If you do that too high. So, another thing to consider. Especially since his oxygen system didn't seem to work right.
0: Which I didn't see discussed anywhere.
1: No, they didn't really discuss it anywhere. And I I don't know if they ended up determining that maybe it worked. He just somehow couldn't get it to function. Because he was
0: hypoxic?
1: Something of that nature. So, who knows? But that was a whole thing. So, anyways, that's it for the findings.
0: The probable cause, read verbatim, as always. The one thing that we can say is, as always... The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was Scaled Composites' failure to consider and protect against the possibility that a single human error could result in a catastrophic hazard to the spaceship 2 vehicle. This failure set the stage for the co-pilot's premature unlocking of the feather system as a result of time pressure and vibration and loads that he had not recently experienced, which led to uncommanded feather extension and the subsequent aerodynamic overload and in-flight breakup of the vehicle.
1: Single point, catastrophic failure. Yep. That's pretty much the thing you need to take away from that. Why was there a single point for catastrophic failure? A single point failure. That's it. That's all it was to catastrophe. And that was, it's unfortunate that that's that simple. You know, it should have been thought through a little bit. That's the human error piece, right? The human factors. So let's do some recommendations because there are some. To the FAA, there are a lot. I would hope so. Because that's the main thing. Please don't start from square one. Right. We recommend that in collaboration with the Commercial Space Flight Federation, develop and issue human factors guidance for operators to use throughout the design and operation of a crewed vehicle. The guidance should address, but not be limited to, the human factors issues identified during the Spaceship 2 accident investigation. This one particularly hits on CRM in specific, because... There wasn't a lot of CRM on this particular instance. Like, they just didn't do CRM. That was... Like them having to commit things to memory purely out of the fact that they had to do them so quickly does not promote CRM. Nope. That high workload thing is what leads to human factors problems. And that's what they didn't consider. So CRM is kind of the thing here. And that's why this to me is like in 2014, why are we considering this again? Like this is, you, wh- know, this. Wh- why, why, you know this. Why are we
2: talking about crew resource management? Right. You know, why this. do we have to constantly keep talking about crew resource management? We're literally telling you to take everything
1: you know about aviation and just shift it over. That is it. That's all you have to do. Implement it. All. I know it's a lot of work but you have to do it just like everyone else.
2: Well, and it's you're you're going to have to find a different way to do it right cuz there's so like we talked about there's so such a small amount of time right. for all these things to happen. So right. if there are time to do it a, a checklist. Right. No, but maybe how these are we... memory items Right. Right. That... How do we split these? <laughs> Tasks
1: up in a manageable fashion to avoid human factor problems. There should be call
2: outs from each pilot, right? Like
1: and there were some, but there needs to be a deviation in who does what. Right. And how those tasks are like it literally needs to be manageable. Right. It needs to be manageable. And it wasn't. So Which is why there was a mistake. Right. Human error does happen. They recommend implementing steps in your evaluation of experimental permit. Applications to ensure that applicants have, one, identified single flight crew tasks that, if performed incorrectly or at the wrong time, could result in a catastrophic hazard. And two, assess the reasonableness, including human factor considerations of the proposed mitigations to prevent errors that could result from performing those tasks. And three, finally documented the rationale used to justify related assumptions in the hazard analysis required by 14 Code of Federal Regulations 437.55. So all of that to say everything kind of we've been talking about, but within an experimental program, there needs to be specifics about human factors, when to implement it during the application process for a commercial spaceflight. They need to be considering these things so that it's not a problem during test. It's something they address beforehand. Right. Like a single point of failure.
2: Which shouldn't be happening in 2014. Right. Just saying. Right. They recommend developing
1: a process to determine whether an experimental permit applicant has demonstrated the adequacy of existing mitigations to ensure public health and safety, as well as safety of property, before granting a waiver from the human error hazard analysis requirements of 14 Code of Regulations, 437.55. So the whole thing about not just considering the people inside, because that is obviously important, mm-hmm. but public health and safety is also a thing. You're testing this over a public space still, no matter what. Right. Like the Mojave Desert is still public space, is it going to be a hazard to the public? And the answer to that was yes, potentially. This could have been.
0: It
2: wasn't. But it wasn't, but it been. could have
1: been. So another thing they should have done during application. They recommend developing and issuing guidance for experimental permit applicants that, one, includes the information in Advisory Circular 413-1, license application procedures, and two, encourages commercial space vehicle manufacturers to begin the consultation process with the Office of Commercial Space Transport during a vehicle's design phase. Again, the design thing. We should be consulting human factors and all of the departments during design, not during test. I mean, we should be consulting them during test too, of course, but... But Many of I, these things should have been addressed beforehand.
0: But as I said, like it's uh, human factors is a crucial aspect to any form of design. Right. Yep. I was doing it for medical devices. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. They recommend developing and implementing a program for Office of Commercial Space Transportation Inspectors that aligns them with individual operators applying for an experimental permit or a launch license to ensure that the inspectors have adequate time to become familiar with the technical operational training and management controls that they will inspect. So... This comes down to the fact that the FAA had basically assigned an inspector to this launch mm-hmm. saying you have to learn everything about this spacecraft just before it launches rather than working with them on a continued basis from the time they submit their application all the way through to launch because they should know everything about it as it's developed. Right. That would have saved a lot of face, but that didn't happen. They're recommending collaboration with the commercial spaceflight industry continue work to implement a database of lessons learned from commercial space mishap investigations, encourage commercial space industry members to voluntarily submit lessons learned. That's the whole thing. The FAA already has that for aviation in general. So the whole thing with that, of course, comes down to, like I said, it was in the findings, but it's also in the recommendations. They're hitting this hard because this is something that already exists and they should have it there too. It's just one of those things it's like this is a best practice. This is something we all should know about. So it just doesn't happen. It's, it's all part of just public health and safety. It's just good to know. Two more recommendations, and these are both to the Commercial Spaceflight Federation. This is the group of commercial spaceflight operators, which to this day includes, you know, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, all that. They recommend advising commercial space operators to work with local emergency response partners to revise emergency response procedures and planning to ensure that helicopters and other resources are appropriately deployed during flights so that they're ready to go in all the right places. That's the gist of that. And finally, they recommend to work with the Federal Aviation Administration to develop and issue human factors guidance for operators to use throughout the design and operation of a crewed vehicle. The guidance should address, but not be limited to, the human factors issues identified during the Spaceship Two accident investigation. Everything, basically, that's their short way of saying, everything we just recommended to the FAA is entirely on YouTube. Because... For some reason, the Commercial Space Flight Federation holds apparently as much weight as the FAA to these organizations, be it that they're all part of it. So if they're all going to have their own regulations, then you might as well at least make them the same. And that's pretty much it. Cool. That sums up this one. This was was definitely a unique one, a different one. This is not a form of travel or a vehicle that we will ever talk about again, probably. (laughs) But quite interesting.
0: It's a weird one, that's for sure.
1: This was a weird one.
0: That's it. <laughs> okay. We're That's talking it. about human
2: factors, and I kind of went. <sighs>
1: the, the Lost over? Like human
2: factors, human factors, human yes. factors, human factors. Human I, factors. Okay.
1: I told you they would hit it hard. I told you I would. That and was they the should. The whole second half. I mean, it was And they everything, should. Everything in the second half.
2: Okay. That was Virgin Galactic Powered Flight 4.
1: Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Mouthful. It is a mouthful.
2: Okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to, we are going to be talking about some cool stuff on the post episode. You can go check out the Patreon. Highly encourage you to do that. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Make sure, again, if you're going to send us an email or a message, please know we read everything. We may not get back to you immediately. It will happen. It just doesn't happen immediately. Chris and Kevin and David and pretty much everybody else. Yeah. Like, we really do read them. We, we really just, do. It takes a lot of time for us we, to get to it and schedule stuff and all, all that We all
1: have stuff. full-time jobs that are all taking more than full-time right now.
2: And sometimes I'm like, I'll answer it later, and then I get home from work and I pass out. Exactly. So, please <laughs> exactly. be aware that it is not your fault. Right. Okay, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Make sure you check out the newsletter. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week.
0: Keep your speed up.